Hear God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you know that the word insanity is not a psychological term? A psychologist will never diagnose someone as insane. It's actually a legal term comes from the legal world, and it's a term that is used to determine a criminal's legal liability for their behavior. And so I looked up the legal definition of insanity, and this is how it starts. It says, a mental illness, this is what insanity is, it's a mental illness of such a severe nature that a person cannot distinguish fantasy from reality. That's how the law defines insanity, not being able to distinguish fantasy from reality. So, in the eyes of the law, the further your perceptions of the world are from reality, the more insane you are. Now, here's the key question. Who gets to define what is reality? In order to talk about insanity, you have to first of all define what is reality and who gets to define it. And that explains a lot of our problems. The Bible tells us that by definition, that definition, we're all born insane. And that as we are born sinners into the world and continue to sin, we only become more and more insane as our perceptions get farther and farther away from what is true reality, as God defines it. And so, insanity, according to Scripture, is not ultimately caused 
by circumstances, experiences, or even physiological issues. Ultimately, it all goes back to sin and the effects of sin upon us. But in light of that definition, then what is salvation? Salvation is having our sanity restored to us. Salvation is God enabling those whom he is saving to see reality for what it is and to be delivered from the delusions and fantasies of this fallen world. Being able to distinguish what is false from what is true as God reveals it to us. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and what we've been seeing over these first five or six chapters is that Paul is actually sitting in Ephesus. He's received a series of reports, or maybe just one long report, about a bunch of problems in this church in Corinth. And one by one, chapter by chapter, he's addressing each of the issues that have been reported to him that are troubling this church. As we've been going through the list, as we're seeing what their issues are, what we're seeing is that Paul is deeply concerned about some of these things. And many of them are things that the church itself is not taking very seriously. And so what you sense is Paul's urgency to get it across to these Christians in Corinth that these problems aren't trivial, that they're actually very serious, they may be even terminal to the church, and that they reflect deep issues of both bad theology and sinfulness at the heart of it, at the root of it. And so Paul uses very strong language and very urgent warnings to get them to to impress upon them the gravity of their situation. He's basically saying to them, you're regressing back into the insanity of the world. Thinking and acting as though what the world says is true is what's really true. And so here in chapter 6, we get to the next thing on his list of bad issues, his bad reports that he's dealing from Corinth. And the issue in chapter 6 is that in Corinth, church members were taking their conflicts and their disputes to the civil courts for resolution instead of dealing with them within the church, instead of dealing with them within the church family. Now, your first reaction to that problem may be that, well, is that really that big of a problem? Or what's wrong with that? And that's what Paul will spell out for us in this chapter. He treats it like a very serious issue. He treats it as a deadly problem in the church because it reflects that their mind and their hearts have fallen out of touch with reality. Why must we deal with all of our conflicts within the church, our disputes? Why must we deal with them in-house, within the church? Paul says you need to get back to the basics of reality as God defines it. And the first thing that he tells us is that we must look to the word of God instead of to the world for our sense of reality. 
Look at verse 1. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? If you look at the original Greek of this letter, the word dare is the first word in the sentence. And in Greek, that was a trick they used to put emphasis on a certain word. And so as you read that sentence, what that says to us in English is that Paul meant to emphasize the word dare. And so if we were to say it in English, I think this is how we would say it. How dare you take your disputes to the world for resolution? That's how strongly he's speaking here. Now let me be clear, he's not talking about criminal cases. There is a legitimate God-ordained role for the civil government and the courts in particular. What he's talking about is what we would call suing one another. In other words, us as individuals taking other individuals to court to try to protect our rights or our property. Civil suits is the kind of thing that he has in mind. And he's saying, how can you take those to the worldly courts for resolution? Have you lost your mind? Now, it's interesting to me that he doesn't get into any of the details of the suits themselves. And Scripture does that. It's amazing. That's where you see the hand of the Spirit behind the the writers of Scripture, is that we're not to get caught up in the details of what the disputes were about. What he wants us to focus on is that it's unthinkable that we would take these suits to the civil courts for resolution. What's interesting to me is there's a logical connection with chapter 5. When we looked at 1 Corinthians the last time we were together, we saw that the issue in chapter 5 was that the church was refusing to confront and address and discipline the sin of one of its members. And you remember what the sin was. It was a particularly scandalous sin that would have fallen into the category of incest. And the church was tolerating it, overlooking it, allowing it to continue in its midst. And so chapter 5 was devoted to say, you need to render judgment in the case of this man. He's unrepentant. He's unresponsive to the leadership of the church. You need to bring church discipline to to bear. He spends the chapter 5 convincing them that they have a right and a role and a responsibility to judge within the church. Look at verses Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 5. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so it's in light of that rebuke in chapter 5 that he now says in chapter 6, look at the irony here. He says, I've just rebuked you for not doing your job of judging sin within the church, and now you're taking your disputes within the church to the world outside the church for them to render judgment according to their standards on your issues. You won't judge what you're supposed to judge within the church, but yet you take stuff that you're supposed to judge in the church and you take it to the world to make judgment upon. And he's incredulous. And again, at the root of it, we see in the way that he responds to this in the church, what he's saying to them is you've forgotten who you are and you've forgotten what you're here to do. Those are the two points that he makes in this passage. You need to remember who you are And secondly, you need to remember why you're here. What's your your identity and what's your purpose as the church of Jesus Christ? And once you get that back clearly in mind and you understand who you are and why you're here, then you'll start to do the right thing. 
And so the first question he addresses, why must we resolve our own conflicts in the church? It's because of who we are in Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? A little bit later, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? He's not talking about what's going to happen in that day or what's going to happen in our day. He's talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. When Jesus Christ returns in all of his glory. And what he's talking about is judgment day. And on that day, what the scriptures allude to several times throughout scripture is that not only are all human beings going to stand before God to give an account for their lives, but in a very real sense, God's people are going to be somehow involved in the judgment of the world. Daniel chapter 7 says this, talking about the end times. This horn, which is a symbol or a, uh, a symbolic vision of the Antichrist or the anti-Christian uh, powers in the world, says this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. We reign with Christ. Talk to, Christ talked about his disciples reigning with him in the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation chapter 2, it says, The one who conquers, speaking of the believer, the one who conquers and keeps my works, the Lord speaking, Lord Jesus speaking to the church, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. I don't know what that looks like. But we do know that in some way, we are going to reign with Christ, and the first act of our reign is to sit in judgment over the rest of the world that rejected Christ as Lord and Savior. And Paul's alluding to that eschatological truth. And that's one of the beautiful things about Paul's writings about the church. You see that through everything he writes, is he has this tension between what the church looks like today, in his day, and what it's going to look like when Christ is finished with it. And he always sees the problems of the church in the moment against the backdrop of what Christ has promised to do in and for and through his church until his plan of redemption is complete. And so I think Paul is continually calling upon us to have that same perspective. It is so easy to get frustrated with the flaws and the sins and the chaos and the corruption that exists in the church today, but we need to have the mindset of Paul. We need to look at the church the way Paul looked at the church and see what the church is today in light of what she is going to become by God's grace because God is faithful and he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And his ability to look at the church as it is and as it will be enabled him. You can see in his letters he does it. He's not afraid to rebuke sin immediately and harshly when he sees it, but he'll turn right around and talk about the glories of the church. He does it even in 1 Corinthians, one of the most troubled churches we had in the first century. He goes on to say, not only are we going to judge those who reject Christ on Judgment Day, along with Christ and under his authority, we're even going to judge the angels. I remember, you know, first time I read that, it struck me as an odd thought. Why would I judge angels? Because we tend to think of angels as being superior to us. You know, God, angels, us. But that's not the hierarchy of the way the scriptures lay it out, is it? In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
you realize that about angels? Angels are servants of the church. And one day, we are going to judge the angels, particularly those angels like the world that have rejected Christ, rejected the kingdom, that have been cast out of heaven and have been serving the purposes of the forces of darkness throughout all of history. In some way, we're going to be involved in pronouncing judgment upon them for their rebellion. You see this picture of the church that Paul's laying before us? We are princes and princesses in the kingdom of God, invested with authority. And one day we're going to reign with Christ and judge the world and judge angels. Saying, can't you judge these minor trivial disputes in your own midst? You've forgotten who you are. We've been given authority to judge the church now, within the church, and then later to judge even the world. And we need to act accordingly. Act as though we have the authority that's been given to us as a church. He goes on in verse 2 to say, And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? We are competent to trust, to judge, and to officiate over any disputes and conflicts within our midst. Now, as a church leader, I can say I often don't feel very competent to do that. But that's my lack of faith. My lack of faith in what? My lack of faith in the Word of God and my lack of faith in the Holy Spirit. Because Christ has given to his church everything that we need to live, to believe, and to serve until he comes again. This word is sufficient for every situation in life. We have God's revelation, and we have the Holy Spirit to guide us in applying it. Will we do it perfectly? Of course not. But that's not the contrast between what we should do and what we can do. That's not the contrast Paul's talking about. He's talking about the contrast between what the church can do because it has the Word of God and because it has the Holy Spirit and what the world can do without either of those. Now, I'm not saying that there's no sense of justice and truth and right and wrong in the world. Clearly there is. By God's common grace, he has left a vague sense of what's right and wrong in the hearts of even unbelievers. But compare that vague, corrupted, dark, obscured sense of right and wrong that's out there in the world that rejects Christ and rejects the word of God with what's available to us within the church. That's Paul's contrast. And so he says in verses 2 and 3, notice he equates two things. He equates trivial cases. You might say, what's he mean by trivial cases? Well, he explains what he means right after that when he says matters pertaining to this life. You see, when he's talking about trivial cases, he's not talking about whether your neighbor returned your lawnmower to you after he borrowed it. That, that's certainly trivial. But that's not all of what he's talking about. He talks trivial. He's saying anything's trivial in the light of eternity that matters pertains to this life. Things that deal with disputes about earthly rights, earthly property, earthly possessions, all these things are trivial in the light of eternity. That's what he's saying. He's saying, can't you judge about temporal matters? Can't you make judgments among yourselves about right and wrong, about life in this fallen world with what God has given you to make you competent? He says in verse 5, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? 
when he brings wisdom into the picture, he's alluding back to what he said back in chapters 1 and 2. Remember that. That was his first issue he dealt with, is that in the church in Corinth, they were looking to the world for wisdom instead of looking to the Word of God for wisdom. And he made clear that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the eyes of God. Let me read to you just a couple of verses from chapter 2. He says, among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And he ends that passage in verse 16 by saying, we have the mind of Christ. We are equipped with what we need through the Word and the Spirit to judge disputes and conflicts in our midst. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why would we go to the world to deal with these matters? In this presidential election, as I've listened to the debates in light of the death of a Supreme Court justice, it's become pretty clear that this election is as much about who's going to sit in judgment on the Supreme Court and the lower courts as it is about who's going to sit in the Oval Office and govern from there. What do you want in the judges who are going to make judgments for our society, for our country. Don't you want judges, given the possibility, given the authority to pick judges to reign over us, would you not pick judges who fear God, judges who respect and honor God's law, judges who have biblical values and a biblical worldview? And by God's grace, he has sprinkled his people into those civil positions here and there. Not nearly enough of them, it seems. But they're there. But largely from the world, what you're going to get is foolishness and a rejection of God in his word. In the church is where you will find the fear of God, the respect for his law, and a biblical worldview to make judgments about your life and your disputes, and your conflicts. I mean, when I think about foolishness, the first thing is when I'm thinking about going to people to tell me how I should live, I just think about what the world does. Do you ever notice when there's a big political or social issue and they want some figure to come and speak authoritatively about how you should vote or how you should think or what you should do with your life? Who do they go to? Actors, actresses, and athletes. That's who you hear from more than anybody when they say, what, how should you respond to this social issue? It's just an illustration to me of the foolishness of the world. Not to say that there aren't some believing actresses and, actors and actresses and athletes. But that's foolishness. God has given us what we need. Verse 9, he spells out the difference. Again, put this in the context of him saying, you've forgotten who you are. And so in verse 9, what he does is he spells out, he says, look at the difference between the church and the world. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list some sins that were very prevalent, very prominent in the culture, in the society that was in Corinth. And boy, does it sound very familiar because those sins are still very prevalent and prominent in our own society and culture. 
And so you see that list and you think, well, well wait a minute. We were guilty of some of those things, at least. And he's saying, you're right. Some of you were. But God is intervening. God has invaded your life. He has taken the initiative. He has called you to himself. He has washed you in the blood of his son. He has made you clean. He has made you righteous in his sight with the gift of the righteousness of his son. He has raised you from the dead with his son. He has seated you in the heavenly places. He has made you a child of God. He's given you the kingdom. These are the ways of the world. They are not repenting of these sins. They are living out these sins. They are rejoicing in these sins. They are not only doing these sins, but they're approving of those who do those sins. That's what it's like out in the world. Remember who you are. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. And by that, he doesn't mean made holy over the course of a lifetime. He means set apart. You've been made holy. You've been set apart to belong to God. And you have been justified by grace, by faith alone, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. All three of those verbs, washed, sanctified, justified, they are aorist passive in the original Greek, which means they happen once for all in the past, not to be repeated, and the effect of it lasts for eternity. You are washed, sanctified, belonging to God, and justified before his presence. That's who you are. Which brings us, that's the gospel. The difference between us and the world is the gospel. What Jesus Christ has done. And the effect that the gospel has upon us. And the wisdom through the word and the spirit that is given to us. Which gets us to the second point. Because Paul is basically saying, first of all, be who you are in Christ. Secondly, he says, we must resolve our own conflicts because of what we're called to do. He first deals with our identity, but then he deals with our purpose. Why are we here? If making us perfect, if the process of sanctification was the purpose of us being here, wouldn't that be better served if God just took us right to heaven? Why has he left us here? Why are we here between the first and second coming of Christ? Notice in verses 6 and 7, Paul points to the damage to their witness that these court cases, these lawsuits have done. He says, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. We believe that that, what that's alluding to is that in the Greek court system, the courts, the civil courts, were placed right alongside of the marketplace. And the reason for that is because just like we like to watch court dramas and movies and television all the time, that's nothing new. They loved to watch court dramas in the first century. They just went live. They would go buy their stuff in the marketplace and then hang out at the, at the courts next door and watch the lawyers argue their cases. And it was great entertainment. You see why this is upsetting to Paul? You've got Christian brothers and sisters fighting each other for their rights and their property and their freedoms in these civil courts before the world, before unbelievers. Paul's saying again, Are you, have you lost your mind? You're destroying your witness. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the church has been given by God the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he calls gospel ministry. The ministry of reconciliation. 
If these believers understood that, how could they possibly go and try to settle their disputes in worldly courts under worldly judgment before the eyes of the world? It's a denial of the gospel, Paul is saying. Because the gospel teaches us to forgive one another the way Christ has forgiven us. To forgive one another as unconditionally and completely as Christ has forgiven us. The gospel teaches us to love our neighbor as ourself. The gospel teaches us to love our enemy and to do good to those who would seek to harm us. That's what the ministry of reconciliation looks like. That's what the gospel does in the hearts of sinners like you and me. How many people initiate a lawsuit against another person because they love that person? and want to do good to that person. How often have you seen that happen? You see, that's the issue Paul's addressing here. And what he's also addressing is how we view our rights and our property and our freedoms, these trivial issues of this life that are all going to turn to dust and blow away. How do we view those things? That's what he's addressing here. We are not here to protect our rights and our property. That's not our purpose. Jesus taught us a different attitude towards our rights and our property. Let me remind you of what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. We hear that and we say, yeah, but Jesus, (laughs) let me qualify that. Surely there are times that turning the other cheek or going the extra mile or giving the thief another, another article of clothing, surely there are times that that's not the right thing to do. Yes, there are times and that's not the right thing to do. You know what the difference is? Sometimes loving your brother or your sister means not allowing them, taking legitimate means to stop them from abusing you. Yes, but don't jump to the exception and miss the point that we are not here to avoid suffering. We're not here to protect our rights and property. We are here for one purpose and one purpose alone. And it's all wrapped up in the gospel. Paul says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another in the public setting, he means, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Do you hear what he's saying? I don't care who wins your civil case. You both lose. And the church loses because of the way you're handling it. Because you're destroying the witness of the church. And you're denying the gospel. And then he says in verse 7, probably the hardest verse for us to hear in this entire passage. In verse 7, he says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's not saying that that's how you should respond to every offense in your life, is to allow yourself to be cheated or defrauded or offended. He's not saying that. But he's saying it would be better to allow yourself to be cheated and defrauded than to take your case and your conflict out to the world, to display it to the world, and ask the world to give its corrupted sense of justice and right and wrong. It's so easy for the church to forget why we're here. Especially in a prosperous and safe and free country like we've lived in for so long. 
not to protect our rights and property. It's to glorify God first and foremost. Secondly, to proclaim the gospel. And thirdly, to make disciples. That's our purpose. Glorify God, proclaim the gospel, make disciples. That's why we're here. We are here to bring transformation by the word and the spirit to a fallen world, not to ask the world to bring reconciliation to the church. The only true reconciliation comes through the message of the gospel. I once witnessed an ugly, ugly dispute in a neighboring PCA church when I was in the suburbs of Philadelphia. It was a dispute between elders and and a dispute particularly focused upon the pastor and it got worse and worse to the point where one Sunday the church called, some of the leaders of the church called the police to come and bar the pastor from entering the building. And you better believe the local headlines were all over that. And I was a part of the Presbytery Committee that came in, commission that came in to try to clean up the mess, to try to bring peace according to biblical standards with the wisdom and spirit of God and the word of God. And I tell you, the most, one of the most discouraging days in my church leadership experience was sitting there listening to person after person tell what the offenses were, what the grievances were. And you get to the end, and I swear I had the spirit of Paul upon me. I'm saying, you've got to be kidding me. These things are trivial. These things are all about rights and earthly temporal issues. And you've allowed it to not only bring shame upon the gospel and shame upon the church, but you've allowed it to destroy the church. But it happens all the time. Because we forget who we are. And we forget why we're here. We gather here on Sundays and on other occasions in order to restore our sanity. That's why we come here. We do it through the means of grace that Christ has given to the church, the word and the sacraments, as we worship together. The purpose of being here is to bring our thinking and behavior into conformity with what is true reality as God has defined it for us so that we do remember our identity and a purpose, who we are and what we're here to do. And yes, there is a place for the civil courts. Don't get me wrong. God has ordained the civil courts, including the court system, civil government including the court system, to restrain wickedness to affirm, to affirm good conduct. And Paul even called upon the Roman civil governments and courts and their legal system in order to protect him from false accusations. There's a legitimate role But when it comes to disputes within the church, conflicts within the church, we are going to have them because we're sinners. But we must keep them within the church. Jesus spelled out a very clear process for dealing with disputes and conflicts among us. It's in Matthew 18. And I like Ken Sandy wrote the book The Peacemaker and he led the ministry, the Peacemaker Ministries for a long time. Ken Sandy basically takes the steps that Jesus gives in Matthew 18 and he kind of teases them out into what he would call six practical steps for following Matthew 18 in terms of how to handle when somebody wrongs you or you wrong somebody else. Here's how you handle it. First step he says to consider is to overlook the offense. And we should use that one 
much more than we do. In other words, when somebody offends us or wrongs us, we need to say, I need to glorify God and love my neighbor. Can I overlook this and do that? Maybe, often, that's the right way to respond to, so, to an offense against you. If you've offended somebody else, then that's not your call to make. But if you're the offended party, overlooking the offense is something to look at very seriously. And that doesn't mean grinding your teeth about it for the next, next 10 years. It means forgiving and putting it behind you. The second step, Ken Sandy says, according to Matthew 18, is to discuss. In other words, go to the offender or the one you've offended. The, notice the scripture gives the responsibility to both parties. Go to the offender or the one who's offended you and discuss it with him. Present the opportunity for confession of sin. Do so kindly, gently, in love for your brother or sister. Thirdly, if that doesn't work, then try to negotiate with your brother or sister. Try to work out an understanding. Even if you can't see it the same way, get to a place where you can overlook what remains and move on and put this behind you in conflict. Those are the first three steps. But if you can't resolve the conflict or dispute with those first three steps, then Ken Sandia, or our Lord Jesus more particularly, says there's three steps that involve the authorities of the church, the leadership of the church. The next step is mediation. And that's where you go and you ask for another brother or sister to come with you to talk to the offender. And you're asking that person to be a peacemaker, to try to bring peace, to bring some sanity, to bring some objectivity to the dispute. If that doesn't work, the next step, Ken Sandy says, is arbitration. And that's where because when you can't negotiate, you can't, mediation doesn't help, you still aren't resolved, there's still a sense that something it has to be done to resolve this conflict. Then you ask the church leadership to render a decision and you uh, uh, agree in advance that you're going to accept that decision and whatever it is and move on. That's arbitration. If that doesn't work and you have one party or both parties that refuse to submit and refuse to resolve this biblically, then you get into the final step of church discipline potentially of excommunication. And now you've got somebody who's outside the church maybe two people outside the church, but you're dealing with a different situation. It's not an in-house issue anymore. Now, that doesn't answer a whole big topic about how to handle dispute, but I'm just saying Christ has given us what we need to deal with these things the way he's told us to do it. Ken Sandy says that conflict in the church is an opportunity. We tend to view it as a disaster, but he says it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to love your neighbor, to submit to the Lord, and to proclaim the gospel by not only what you say, but what you do. We are living out a ministry of reconciliation. That's our testimony to the world. That's what the gospel does in sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for thinking so much like the world. Forgive, forgive us for getting so caught up in our prosperity and our freedoms and our rights and forgetting who we are and why we're here. We are the kingdom of God as it's visibly manifested before the world. Father, I pray that we would not only understand who we are, but act accordingly. And Lord, I pray that we would see the disputes and conflicts that may already be going on, but certainly will come in the future. May we see them genuinely as opportunities to put the, the gospel into action.
and to be a testimony to the world. And may we not bring shame upon the church by the way that we respond to these opportunities. Give us grace. Give us your word. Give us your spirit.